Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here this morning for the Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer Around God's Word, Saturday, April 29th, 2023. Being that it's Saturday, we're going to look to tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading. We're actually going to tie them together, hopefully pretty well. I'm not sure how well they tie in with uh, the Gospel text for tomorrow, but they, they certainly relate to one another and uh, we're going to use a work from Luther to help us understand that. Um, just in brief, though, um, <laughs> there's always more study than we probably have time to do. All right, need the coffee. It's essential, right? We'll also uh, consider the hymn that we've been singing all week, give you a little bit of the backstory of that, and also uh, the psalm, maybe provide some more insight to that psalm that you didn't know, even though it's probably the most familiar psalm of them all. All right, so let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Memory verse. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. John 11, verse 25 through 26. I suppose it's a bit of an enigmatic statement and just taken on its face, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, so he'll die, or likely die, right? Unless Jesus comes again. He shall live. Wait a minute. If he dies, how shall he live? Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But you just said that we will die, right? And of course, you want to take into context here uh, the way that Jesus refers to death, but asleep for those who die in him. They're not dead, but sleeping, he says, right? So, uh, death has been transformed, to quote the uh, Apostle Paul. Right? It's no longer the, the same sort of thing that it was for those who die in the Lord. Good. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Okay, Uh, as I like to do on Saturdays is to uh, read you a meditation on the psalm, and this is from Father Patrick Henry Reardon, Christ in the Psalms. Uh, He takes the psalms in the way that uh, Jesus teaches us. Uh, We heard this from Luke 24 earlier in the week, if you remember. Jesus revealed to, or um, opened their eyes to see or ears to hear everything that had been testified of him in Moses and in the prophets, and then he also added in Luke 24, and in the Psalms, in the Psalms, right? So everything testifies of Christ in the Psalms. Or, did I say that correctly? Yes, I did. (laughs) He writes, One has the strong impression, strong to the point of certitude, that the Good Shepherd Psalm is the best known, most frequently prayed, and most widely memorized psalm in the Bible. I have a hard time using it from the English Standard Version here, uh, because I memorized it, apparently, in the King James. (laughs) This psalm, traditionally Psalm uh, 22 from its numbering in the Septuagint and Vulgate, but now popularly known as the 23rd psalm from its numbering in the Masoretic Hebrew text, is particularly popular in the King James Version. Oh, there we go. Both of my children could recite it by heart at age three, an accomplishment that one suspects is not uncommon in Christian homes. Many believers pray it daily. The popularity of this psalm is doubtless related to the traditional attraction of the image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. The latter, a fact readily demonstrable from the New Testament and the very earliest Christian art. 
This attraction, still widely widespread, was absolutely universal among the first Christians. For instance, in Matthew, written in Syria, the theme of Jesus as the Good Shepherd was especially related to that of evangelism and the sending out of the apostles, Matthew 9, 36-38. This emphasis is constant with the parable of the shepherd searching for the lost sheep, preserved in Matthew 18, 12-14. In Mark's Gospel, written in Rome, the theme of the Good Shepherd was especially associated with the multiplication of the loaves, Mark 6, 34. Here one sees Jesus making his flock recline on the green grass, Mark 6, 39, an image clearly drawn from our psalm. Evidentially, uh, this became a favorite image among the Christians at Rome, for pictures of Jesus as the Good Shepherd appear everywhere in the catacombs and other early art in that city. Another New Testament work written at Rome twice refers to Jesus as the Shepherd, 1 Peter 2, 25 and 1 Peter 5, 4. And the image likewise appears in Hebrews 13.20, which also seems to be connected with Rome, Hebrews 13.24. Moreover, a second century Christian of Rome named Hermas made this the major image of Jesus in a lengthy work that is called, in fact, the Shepherd, or the Shepherd of Hermas. I referred to that yesterday in uh, the Banned Books episode we recorded, Banned Books episode 305. And uh, there's a link in the show notes to that episode to the Shepherd of Hermas, as a matter of fact. Besides Syria and Rome, the, shep- the symbol of Jesus as Good Shepherd was also clearly a popular one among the Christians in Asia Minor. For example, in the mid-2nd century, the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, refers our Lord as the Shepherd of the Church. See Martyrdom of Polycarp 19 verse 2. Much earlier, however, that theme was already recorded in the Gospel of John, written in the Asian capital of Ephesus. At the very end of this gospel, Jesus refers to my lambs and my sheep. We heard that last week, John 21, 15 to 17. But the longer development of this idea is in chapter 10. That's the Good Shepherd chapter, which uh, we heard last Sunday. In this chapter, several aspects of the image are treated. The sensitivity of the sheep to the shepherd's voice, the utter uniqueness of the shepherd in contrast to the hireling or the robber, the shepherd's giving of his life for his sheep, the gathering of the lost sheep into a single flock, and their total security. In the traditional exegesis of the church, this psalm bears special reference to the sacraments of initiation, baptism, chrismation, and the Holy Eucharist. And that's what they're called in the Eastern Church, by the way, those three together. Thus, it is the baptismal font that the psalmist has in mind when he proclaims, He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. Thus, too, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chrismation that is referred to in the psalm, You anoint my head with oil. By the way, um, I reintroduced, um, by way of Luther, actually, Luther retained the anointing with oil after baptism with water. Um, So, uh, not this week, but the next week, you'll see, we'll actually do that anointing as well. Thus, likewise, it is the altar of the messianic banquet that the psalm means when it says, You prepare a table before me, in the presence of mine enemy, my cup brims over. So immediately following baptism, we direct the newly baptized towards the Lord's Supper. With adults, it typically happens right thereafter uh, because they've been initiated um, and catechized both into baptism and the supper simultaneously. Uh, with infants, or with, uh, we start instruction immediately and again, um, get them to the altar, uh, not by any kind of arbitrary age, say sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that, but rather through instruction um, and their confession of faith, then they're welcome to the sacrament. All right. Uh, in the Eastern Church, they actually commune the infant immediately after baptism, and then uh, not again until after instruction, which, well, take it or leave it on that one. Seems, yeah, we could argue with, the, with my Eastern friends until <laughs> the cows come home on that one. All right. And then this interpretation of Baptism, chrismation, that is anointing with oil, and then the reception of the supper, is already clear in Mark 6, the earliest written account of the multiplication of the loaves. Above, we noted Mark's insertion in 634, a passage from Ezekiel on the theme of the Good Shepherd. That's Ezekiel 37. Also, we saw his reference to the crowds reclining on the green grass, even though this takes place in the desert. The latter details surely taken from our psalm. But in the same passage, Mark likewise regards the multiplication of the loaves and hence of the Good Shepherd through the lens of the Eucharist. Note, for instance, Mark's use of the four Eucharistic verbs in verse 41 to describe how Jesus took the bread, blessed, broke, and gave it to the believers. Such is the mystic table that the Good Shepherd 
having led us safely through the valley of the shadow of death, prepares before us, beside the still waters, our heads anointed with oil. Right? So it's describing um, the life of the Christian who follows a good shepherd, being led beside still waters, that is, being baptized, anointed with oil, that is, um, made one with Christ, who is the anointed one, and then, what? To the supper, to the table, prepared in the midst of the enemies. All a, a prefigurement, of course, of our life together in faith with Christ in the life to come. Very nice. Well said. All right. Even if we have a um, some, what, division as to maybe the timeline of such a thing. But there you go. Catechism, table of duties to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 22. This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. All right. Um, First, to note tomorrow's gospel text, just so you can keep this in context, and we're not going to read it this morning. Um, Let's see if we can get to it here. There we are. Sunday, for Sunday, is not John 16, 14. Yes, John. No, that's for the one year, three year. Yeah, it's John 16, verses 16 to 22. Let me actually just share that with you quick. It's a little while, and again, a little while. while you probably remember that uh, from years past. A little while, and you will not see me, or you will, yeah, not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. And the disciples ask one another, what is this he means by a little while? And then he asks them, uh, why are you saying amongst yourself, uh, a little while, and you will not see me again, and you, a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So this is referring to the cross, of course, um, but I think it's also referring to, broadly speaking, uh, the bearing of one's cross as a Christian. And in this life, we often weep and lament over things that the world rejoice in. Hmm, I might think of some uh, contemporary applications of that. You must celebrate us. And we weep and lament, actually. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow for her hours has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born. That man, I don't know why they do that. It's anthropos, it's man, human being, Ah, whatever, has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. All right, again, referring, I think, uh, to his resurrection and, of course, um, then to his return on the last day. Right. So there's, remember, when we interpret uh, Jesus' sayings, often there is, and even the words of the prophets, there's often a duplicity of meaning. So there's a, maybe a short-term, um, what do you want to say, context, but then there's per- perhaps even a more of a long-term uh, cons- context as well. All right. So with that in mind, here's the Old Testament text. Lamentations 3. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait, hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone, keep, keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him, and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion, according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. All right, so as we were saying, the picture of the Christian life here is demonstrated by Jeremiah and his lament. And we want to notice that the Lord is the one who causes grief, right? And the one who afflicts, although not willingly. Hmm. So if he causes grief, but he but he does not willingly grieve the children of men, then what causes the grief? It's actually our rebellion against God, right? Against his word. Our, our flesh's refusal to hold fast to his word and to wait and to be patient. All right. So uh, when Jesus spoke those words in the upper room to his disciples about how the world will weep and, or you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. He's, he's telling them ahead of time or beforehand so that um, they're prepared. 
And I think uh, it's the same reason why Jesus tells us about uh, our our cross-bearing, the kind of things that he lays upon us for the sake of our repentance, that we always are turned away from confidence in ourselves or in the things of this world and technology and innovation or perhaps in worldly rulers, that we always are turned away from them um, as they are <laughs> bring us grief and affliction and difficulty and suffering and rather than um, actual uh, confidence and hope and comfort, the things that only Christ in his saving us can give. So you think of like all the creature comforts of this world, all the first world, we call it, even call them first world problems. <laughs> they're, they're meant to cause us, um, you know, relief from difficulty and suffering and work and labor and all those things. And yet they, they seem to cause their own share of problems. Um, perhaps you might think of the, of the smartphone, right? Oh, we can communicate freely and willingly and we have all the world's information accessed at our fingertips. And yet look at all the anxiety and worry and uh, mental issues caused, especially among young people, um, by, by that technology or the applications on that technology. This is always the case with any kind of uh, tool or even gift of God, that it can be used for good, uh, that is, for faith in Christ, or it can be used for evil, that is, to turn away from God and faith. That's the, that's the distinction between good and evil, by the way. <laughs> All right. Uh, does it lead and, and bring, bring about repentance for the forgiveness of sins? And it is good, right? If it causes us to repent. If it is not, if it leads us away from faith, then it is no longer good. Hmm. Our definition of good is is kind of, well, it's platonic. It comes from the Greeks, uh, as uh, one comedian calls them, those degenerate uh, men, <laughs> the Greeks. Um, we, don't, we cannot define good apart from God's word. And that which is ultimately good is only that uh, which builds up the body of Christ, right? And anything that leads away from faith and confidence in, in Jesus for salvation is no longer, is not good. Uh, Chris says, even when we grieve over the death of a loved one, yeah, that grief is given to us by God, absolutely. Because what? Um, but if it if if it leads us to grieve God and to grieve faith in God, then it is no longer good. But if that grief leads us then to repent of our own sins, to look for confidence in Christ alone for resurrection and life everlasting, um, to grieve of our own sins, right? To mourn the way that our sinful rebellion will bring about our death too, and yet God has conquered. God in Christ has conquered that. For us, right there, you can see the grief is is used, um, as as Saint Paul says, we grieve as others do, and yet not without hope, right? Our grief leads us to find our hope in Christ and Him alone. This is why uh, the Christian uh, funeral is not a celebration of life. Uh, we can we can rejoice or give thanks to God for the life that it was given, right? But a Christian funeral, of course, is a time to grieve, to grieve the consequences of the wages of sin, and. This is why I think a lot of, um, even Christians, refuse to, um, to have their body present at their funeral, right? And they do this through cremation um, or, you know, um, not having the casket even present. I've seen this as well, just a memorial service long after the person's been put in the ground, right? Well, we need to acknowledge it um, because it will bring about our own repentance for our own good. And then we can, we can speak of the hope of the resurrection that was um, the deceased, but also then they would have us believe as well. All right, yeah. Um, so this is difficult because we we tend to, hmm. I heard a, a conversation talking about medical uh, technology and talking about how the goal of medical technology is to relieve suffering. And I'm not entirely confident that that's the purpose of medicine is to relieve suffering. Um, sometimes, the like for, say, for example, a fever, is, as long as it's not dangerously high, it's actually the body's, defense, one of the body's defense mechanisms. So to reduce a fever um, can actually prevent healing. I know that's not what um, what they call allopathic medicine teaches you today, that you always have to throw a drug at everything. Um, you can thank the Rockefellers for that back in the 19-teens and their wholesale uh, revolution and takeover of uh, the medical schools of our country. Right, But fevers can be actually a defense mechanism used by the, the body's own uh, immune system to actually um, to fight against, uh, you know, whatever is causing the symptoms. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that we can't use medicine or we shouldn't use medicine. There are times and places. But, but there, it's the same idea with grief. When you say to someone, oh, you know, don't be sad. Well, maybe they need to be sad. There is a time for grief. There is a time for sorrow. And that, of course, is, um, 
uh, in in the Lamentations as well, right? There's a season or a time for everything. Yeah, yeah. So I think we can um, grieve death. Um, that isn't to say that it doesn't change our the grief over, especially the death of someone um, near and dear to us. Um, it changes over time, but yet, mm, I think um, to say that it goes away is to say that that we don't experience it anymore, and I don't that we don't experience death all around us or decay. Um, I think we should. Speaking of lament and grief, uh, lament and grieve more than just the death of loved ones, um, but the decay of our of our culture that was um i think hmm, more respective of things like beauty and uh, goodness and virtue so we can grieve over that we can grieve over um, the corruption and uh, widespread well tyrannical behavior of our civil government we can grieve that hand it over to god in prayer and ask him um, to use that for our repentance that we don't put our trust in government um, to govern us, that we be be govern that we govern ourselves first and foremost, and that we provide good governance to our own families and our community, uh, even in our congregations, right? And that his, he use the example um, that he's put upon us, which we um, which we confess for the sake of again repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? And then. Um, trusting in him to guide us, to comfort us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, as we said in the psalm, that we um, can wait for him and that we can seek him and wait quietly uh, for his salvation because we know that his mercies are not consumed even by our own unbelief. His compassions don't fail, right? They are persistent. There's quite a bit going on in Lamentations. It'd probably be a good book to read uh, in Bible study. Try to get into it into some depth like we just did. All right. We're going to come back to that in a minute, um, but I want you to hear the epistle as well, because it's going to teach the same sort of things. And then you're going to see how Luther applies this in a work uh, that, w- that you're maybe not familiar with, but we'll try to bring you some familiarity. First Peter 2. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only for to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Hmm. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take, the, take it patiently, this is commendable before God. All right, see? Uh, this is uh, not exactly what you're taught. Uh, <laughs> that we're, we're taught to flee suffering and difficulty. Now, we don't run headlong into um, situations that might cause us suffering and pain. But notice what Peter is careful to say, that we suffer for the sake of what is good, that is, for the will of God, doing good to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Right? Um, and we, we talked about this at length, I suppose, in early, say, March twenty. Uh, 20, March into April, May, tried to work this out um, as much as I think we should have just ignored um, those um, mandates that were put down upon us. Uh, we submitted to them for a time until which it, it was clear to us that um, they were not based upon evidence, but based upon some kind of unreasonable fear. Uh, but then we also had to have that conversation and take that time to catechize, to learn that uh, there is a time where we must obey God rather than men, right? Um, and, and suffer whatever the tyrannical state would put upon us uh, in the event of that, all right? And so we see that um, it is commendable for us to endure grief, suffering wrongfully, like, for the, say, for example, to attend divine service, to hear God's word and receive his gifts, which he has granted us to do, right, for our benefit, for our good. All right, so um, the work I want to share with you uh, is from Luther's Works, Volume 44, 
and uh, it's called the Treatise on Good Works. It's from 1520. Uh, let's see if I have a little bit of an introduction here. So in 1515, Luther was called to the pastorate of the uh, town church of Wittenberg. To his academic responsibilities then were added those of a parish pastor, which I think uh, any academic should be serving in the parish as well. Uh, the exercise of these pastoral duties provided the occasion for his first published works. So he's seven penitential psalms. Um, and then the treatise on good works belongs to the body of essential pastoral writings. This was written uh, to his old friend Spalatine, who was the private secretary of the elector. And uh, so he was had promised to prepare a sermon on good works. And so uh, Luther had been accused by his enemies to that his stress on justification by faith alone had led and indeed would increasingly lead to a total neglect of good works and a concomitant rise of lawlessness, license, and immorality. This accusation is still true today. People accuse us who trust in Christ's justification uh, by faith alone, through grace alone, the, the alones, the solos, uh, as being then having no emphasis on good works. I've heard this even from people near, near to me, <laughs> close to me. Right? Well, because you emphasize forgiveness of, for, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and you don't, ever, you don't talk about good works, then people aren't going to do good works. Even worse, they're going to be lawless and take this as license to sin and, um, and all sorts of immorality. Because you'll just God will just forgive everything. All right. Um, yeah, and this was true for Luther too. Even those close to him were inclined towards this opinion. Um, the possibility of, of misunderstanding and distorting Luther's emphasis upon justification by faith alone was very real. When medieval man thought of faith, he did so in terms of concepts of fides informis, that is, unfashioned raw faith, and fides formata, or informata, complete faith. The fides informis was held to be the bare knowledge or assent, which was needed to, com to be completed by the fides formata, faith adorned by good works. Right, So that's the medieval view. There's this kind of bare faith, and then there's faith formed by works, which is the full or complete faith. Uh, so your faith is not complete unless you have performed good works, is what they would say which make them acceptable in the sight before God. So then many, because of their misunderstanding of what faith is, misunderstood Luther's teaching, um, is illustrated by the tragedy um, of Luther's relationship to Karlstadt and uh, the community at Munster, uh, which is a whole other conversation for another time. All right, so let me get, um, we'll just share a few bits and then we'll get to where he uses, actually both 1 Peter 2 and Lamentations 3 in this work. It's quite a long work, um, but we'll just share some segments. All right. The first thing to know is that there are no good works except those works God has commanded, just as there is no sin except that which God has forbidden. Therefore, whoever wants to know what good works are, as well as doing them, need to know nothing more than God's commandments. All right. So see Matthew 19, for example. Accordingly, we have to learn to recognize good works from the commandments of God and not from the appearance, size, or number of the works themselves, nor from the opinion of men, or of human law, or of custom. Right. So already you can see Luther has moved far afield of uh, medieval Catholicism, and trusting in God's word alone. All right. So the first, highest, and most precious of all good works is faith in Christ. As it says in John 6, when the Jews asked him, what must we do to be doing the good work of God? Jesus answered, this is the good work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, when we hear that or even preach it, we pass over it. We think of nothing of it or think it easy to do. But actually, we ought to pause a long time and think, think it over properly. For in this work, all good works exist. And from faith, these works receive a, a borrowed goodness. Ooh, such a great expression. A borrowed goodness, meaning it's, God, it's Christ's goodness that we borrow that is ours. We must take this absolutely clear or make this absolutely clear so that men can understand it. All right, and then he gives some negative examples um, when people think it's like churchy things or when it's uh, almsgiving, fasting, and other sorts of you know, common welfare things. Those are all good, but only if they're done in faith, he says. All right, uh, let's see. Skip that section. Section four, section five. I think we want to get to section where? Section seven, I think, is what we want. Yeah, this is where he uses lamentation. All right, paragraph seven. In these works, um, I should say which works, a Christian man who lives in this confidence toward God knows all things, can do all things, ventures everything that needs to be done, and does everything gladly and willingly. Not that he may gather merits and good works, but because it is the pleasure 
It is a pleasure for him to please God in doing these things. He simply serves God with no thought of reward, content that his service pleases God. Right? So good works are a spontaneous fruit of faith, simply out of trust in God, not out of any sense of merit or to please God or to, um, to gain favor with the neighbor or anything like that, just simply because that's who you are. Hmm. On the other hand, he who is not one with God or is in a state of doubt worries and starts looking about for ways and means to do enough and to influence God with many good works. All right. In these works, faith is still slight and weak. Let us ask further whether when everything goes wrong with their life, their goods, their honor, their friends, or whatever they have, they still believe that their works are well-pleasing to God and that God in his mercy ordains their sufferings and difficulties for them, whether they be small or great. The great thing in life is to have a sure confidence in God when, at least as far as we can see or understand, he shows himself in wrath and to expect better at his hands than we now know. Right? So faith takes confidence in God even when things are not going well, especially when they're not going well. Here, God is hidden, as the bride says in the Song of Songs. Behold, there, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in through the windows. That means he stands hidden among the sufferings which would separate us from him like a wall, indeed, like a wall or a, of, a, of a fortress. And yet he looks upon me and does not forsake me. He stands there and is ready to help in grace, and through the window of dim faith he permits himself to be seen. And, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, he casts men aside, but that is not the intention of his heart. Right, And there Luther is summarizing verses 30 uh, to 33. Um, we've talked about this in Bible study on Sundays. Um, the distinction between the hidden God and the revealed God. Right, He has revealed himself as a God of mercy um, and grace and help in time of need, all the things we heard here at the beginning, um, faithful with compassions and mercies. Right, That's what he's revealed to us in his word. But our experience, which is what the lament here is uh, dealing with, is that our experience is often contradictory to what his word has revealed. Right, So faith clings to the word, not to experience. This is very important. Right? So Luther goes on. These people know nothing at all of this kind of faith, and they give themselves over to thinking that God has forsaken them and is their enemy. They even lay blame on other men or on the devil and have simply no confidence at all in God. Right? So we blame the devil, blame other people, rather than blame God for their suffering, which is actually what God wants. <laughs> I know this is all new, maybe, to some of you, uh, preached about it on Wednesday, but here it is again, that actually God does cause grief. It says it right here. You see it, right? And again, it's his alien work. It's only for the sake of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Don't blame the devil. Don't blame God. Don't even blame your flesh. Blame, or excuse me, don't blame the devil or the world or your flesh. Blame God. Say, God, why have you afflicted me this way? Why have you brought me to this grief? Why, why am I suffering in this way? Right? And then he'll direct you in his word uh, towards faith. For the sake of repentance, forgiveness of sins, always. For this reason, too, their suffering is always an offense to them and harmful, and yet they go about doing their good works, as they think, quite unaware of this, their serious unbelief. The problem is unbelief. But they who in such suffering trust God and hold on to a good, firm confidence in him who believe that he is well pleased with them, see in their sufferings and afflictions nothing but pure and precious merits, the costliest treasures which no man can assess. For faith and confidence make precious before God all that which others think most shameful. So that it is even, or it is written even of death in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. See how undermining that word is? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? How is that? That's the most shameful thing ever. And yet God finds it um, precious. And just as confidence and faith are better, higher, and stronger at this stage than in the first, so the sufferings which are born in this kind of faith excel all works of faith. Yeah. Wow. I want to read the next part too. I, I could just keep reading, but uh, we'll skip paragraph eight. Now we need to go uh, to where he uses the first Peter text. And this is in the section he calls um, the second work, right? So the first or greatest work is faith. All right. The second work is the work of the second commandment, right? That we should honor God's name and not take it in vain. So the greatest is faith. The second shall have no other gods. The second is to actually call upon God's name. Not use it in vain, but also use it uh, properly. After faith, we can do no greater work than to praise, preach, sing, and in every way laud and magnify God's glory, honor, and name. All right. 
Uh, so you notice Luther here is struggling against a medieval understanding that uh, that sidelined the work of uh, preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments for the sake of faith uh, and love for one another there in the Christian congregation. So they've set aside that first and second com- and third commandment, right? And they've elevated the the latter commandments to be the higher or greater work, right? Whereas love for neighbor is um, subordinate to the love for God. Actually, we cannot love God without loving our neighbor. But without love for God, there can be no love for neighbor. Hmm. Okay, No faith, no love. No love, there will be no faith. All right. Uh, so, again, next to faith, uh, faith, the second work is the work of the second commandment. All right. Uh, let's see here. You can read all about that. By the way, good works then are defined by the law. This is important. Love belongs to the law. We're, we're quite clear about this in the Augsburg Confession. Right? Love is, is a law word. Right? You got to love me. Right? Everybody has to love someone. It's about, it's about service. It's about action. Um, and it's under command. Right? This is why we take vows at, at weddings. Right? Because it's regards to the law, not faith. You just have to trust me. No, that's not marriage. <laughs> uh, trust comes, but, it, but it's earned, right? Um, no, uh, you love me, you serve me, you take care of me, right? And that's what builds trust or faith in one another. All right. Um, where was I going? I'm trying to find the First Peter, right? Where's, yeah, First Peter 2. There's so much here. First Peter 2. Let me see if I, if I do this. Will it get me there? Oh, yeah, I didn't go far enough. All right. And then um, the third commandment would be the, uh, the, the third work, right? And here, I was, I was never going to get there. I needed to skip there. Um, the third commandment, or the third work of the commandment, which commandment are we talking about, actually? Oh, this is the fourth commandment. He's just going through the Ten Commandments, by the way. So the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The third work of the fourth commandment <laughs> is to obey temporal authority. So we talked about this, how God even gives us civil government for the sake of repentance and faith. Now, we, we can't have faith in them, right? But they do repent us, right? Especially in our fear, love, and trust in them above God. So the third work of the commandment is to obey temporal authority, as Paul teaches in Romans 13, Titus 3, and St. Peter in 1 Peter 2. Submit yourselves to the king as supreme and to the princes and his, as his ambassadors and to all ordinances of worldly power. But the task of temporal power is to protect its subjects and to punish theft, robbery, and adultery, as St. Paul says in Romans 13. Authority does not bear the sword in vain. It serves God with it, a terror to evildoers, but the protector of good. Here men sin in two ways. First, if they lie to the government, betray it, or are disloyal to it, neither obeying it nor doing as it orders and commands, whether with their bodies or with their possessions. For even when the government commits an injustice, as the king of Babylon did to the people of Israel, God wants the government obeyed without treachery or deception. Second, we sin when men speak evil of the government and curse it. And when a man cannot avenge himself and abuses the government with grumbling and evil words in public or in private. In all this, we are to regard that to which St. Peter bids us regard, which we can see right above us. And that is that the power of the temporal authority, whether it does right or wrong, cannot harm the soul, but only our body and our property. Unless, of course, here's the key, it should try to openly compel us to do wrong against God or men, as it did in the early church when the rulers were not yet Christian. And as by all accounts, the Turk still does. For to suffer wrong destroys no man's soul. In fact, it improves the soul, though it does inflict hurt to our body or to our possessions. But to do wrong destroys the soul, even though all the world's wealth be gained. This is the reason it is less disastrous when the temporal power goes wrong uh, than when spiritual power does. For when temporal power can do no real harm, because it has nothing to do with the preaching of the gospel or with faith or with the first three commandments. But the spiritual power does harm not only when it does wrong, but when it neglects its duty and busies itself with something else altogether. Even if these other works uh, were better than the, the very best works of the temporal power. Therefore, we must resist the spiritual power when it does not do right and not resist the temporal power even when it does wrong. Right? Because one has to do with the body, the other with the whole person, the soul, the spirit. For the poor people believe and behave just as they see their spiritual overlords believing and behaving. If they see and hear nothing, then they believe nothing and do nothing, since this spiritual power is instituted for no other purpose than to lead people in faith to God. 
this is not so much with the temporal power. The, the temporal power may do or not do as it what it wants. My faith in God still pursues its own course and does not and does its job. For I do not have to believe what the temporal power believes. Right? Wow, it's really kind of incredible because Luther really deals here with uh, whether um, civil government must be obeyed. <clears throat> he has many other writings about that, but it's already here at the beginning. And uh, just to excuse Luther and say, well, he had a godly prince. Well, his godly prince did ungodly things all the time, right? So the question is, um, do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can do, put send both body and soul into hell, right? That's Jesus' teaching. And that's what Luther's running with here, all right? So again, a good work um, is actually to obey even an unjust government, right? To suffer patiently while doing good. That is preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments. Um, that isn't to say you can't work in civil government to, to reform it and to bring about um, some modicum of um, justice, right? But the question is, I asked this question to uh, the young people, have there been any um, civil governments in the history of the world that have been godly? Okay, well, okay, let's speak even more narrowly. Were any of the kings of Israel um, godly in what they did? The answer is no, right? Um, at times, yes. At times, no, right? Uh, but what distinguishes a godly king from an ungodly king? Faith in the forgive and for the forgiveness of sins, right? So even when they did wrong, they re- they would repent or even not repent in, in other cases. Right? So uh, we read the history of the kings and we're like, wait a minute, you're calling David a godly king, but I know about uh, his murder of Uriah the Hittite um, and the theft of Uriah's wife um, and the, the adultery committed with her, Bathsheba. I know about that. Well, how can you call him a godly king? Certainly, that's being held against him. And of course, we, we actually have, in that case, David's repentance um, and his absolution by Nathan, right? Psalm 51. Right. So the good work, again, is always um, to suffer patiently for what is right, right? Um, that is, to live according to God's command, uh, all for the sake of repentance, which is what the commandments do. They repent us for the forgiveness of sins, that we live in faith and trust in Christ again. Uh, being absolved in his name, right? That's what it means to do a good work. <laughs> Ooh, all right? So this is hard. We don't get to define our own good works, which is one of Luther's big themes in that work, and then that's repeated through his whole ministry, all of his writings, is that we don't get to define them. God defines them for us, and they're defined by the commands. The Ten, the ten Commands are enough, actually, and give us far more to do uh, than we can possibly do, and we never do them well or good enough, so they're always calling us to repentance, again, for the sake of faith and trust in Christ. All right, uh, so we'll sing our hymn. Before we do that, though, I'll tell you a little background. This is a contemporary worship, by the way. I don't know if you caught that. Um, the tune was written by Philip Magnus, who's, I don't know where he's currently serving. I think he's in St. Louis area, because I know his wife works in St. Louis. Uh, he was out in Oklahoma at Broken Arrow, um, but now he's a musician in St. Louis, I believe. All right, uh, it's called Union City. The composer attended his grandmother's funeral in Union City, Tennessee, and the sermon was on the passage of Scripture on which this hymn is based. And so that's where he com- why he composed the tune. He calls it Union City. Um, the tune, or the text, though. Christopher Idle, born in 1938, wrote this text in May 1984. All right, so that's probably in all of your lifetimes. While serving as minister at Limestone, East London. In uh, the work Light Upon the River, 1998, he tells how he came to write this hymn. In his own words. In the 1980s, the resurrection of Christ was often headline news after some controversial Easter broadcasts. Um, And so, for example, on March 28, 1980, a construction crew working in the Talpiot section of Jerusalem uncovered an otherwise unknown burial chamber. In it were 10 ossuaries. Speculation led to the idea that this was the tomb of Jesus' family and that his bones were possibly interred there. David Jenkins, then Bishop of Durham, claimed he believed in it. But a resurrection, quote-unquote, where the tomb may still house a corpse is hardly a resurrection at all, right? So if those are the bones of Jesus, then it's not a resurrection at all. Uh, who's the Missouri Synod author that wrote on this? Skeletons in God's Closet, I think, right? In biblical or even creedal terms, right? It's not a resurrection if, if, it's, if there's still a corpse. The unambiguous statements of 1 Corinthians moved me to write this text. The text was pub- first published in, on March 29, 1985 and the edition of Church of England newspaper. Anecdotally, Idle relates, and the author of this commentary actually just wrote some emails back and forth to him, (laughs) which is incredible, right? We sang it the following Easter. 
April 7, 1985, at our sunrise service in the Garden of Christ Church uh, Spitalfields, a shared event with Limestone, or Limehouse, excuse me. Right, so they sung it in the cemetery, which is something I'd like to do, but here we go. It was also sung at uh, Crowborough and appeared in the quarterly Word and Music as well as um, C-E-N, which is, I think, a hymnal. The first published collections to carry the hymn were the Anglican Press, a praise, Oxford University Press, 1987, and Hymns for the People, Marshall Pickering, 1993. Its appearance in Lutheran Service Book is the first in a synodical publication. So there you go. So the hymn was conceived and born as an apologetic response to liberal voices in the late 20th century questioning a central doctrine of the Christian faith, Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Christopher Idle knew that this was not a new heresy. St. Paul addressed this false teaching among the church in Corinth nearly two millennia earlier. The Apostle's strong, divinely inspired statements in 1 Corinthians 15 provided Idle with the encouragement for the hymn text, which is a poetic expression and application of the Pauline pericope. This is much like uh, this joyful Easter tide, right? It was another hymn that does the same thing on the same text. So there you go. Let's sing it. Thanks for the link in the chat uh, to Skeleton in God's Closet, written by Paul Meyer. Uh, Chris asks, I, th- I hope you heard, uh, how old is this hymn? It's 40 years old. It was uh, first uh, sung on Easter, uh, April, whatever it was, 1985. Right, so just about 40 years old. All right, we pray. Oh God, through the humiliation of your Son, you raised up the fallen world. Grant to your faithful people, rescued from the peril of everlasting death, perpetual gladness, and eternal joys. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. We also pray um, this day for Janet, who celebrates her birthday, uh, with Ross and Dick, who celebrate their baptism, 
uh, with all the households of our church, especially those who have lapsed. And uh, we ask the Lord to restore to regular attendance again. Chad and Mindy, Joseph and Andrea, Michael and Jennifer, Shannon, Jerry and Marcella, Monty and Linda. I pray for all, uh, all, all the gifts of God, but especially uh, for the gift of life and birth and for holy matrimony for Aaron and Virginia. Pray for our catechumens. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Dale and Pam, Joe, Kelsey, Marion, Walt, Christopher, uh, Brad recovering from heart surgery, Gus and Eileen with their arm injury, uh, Doug with his back, Sandy with her heart, Hosea, uh, and Emily, Pat, Wade, and Darlene. Pray for our homebound, Marcella, Dan, Paul, Merlin, and Pauline. We continue to pray for our mission of the month, alert disaster relief teams. Uh, we ask the Lord to mortify the old man in us and to preserve his word and increase his church amongst us. And finally, we pray for the family and friends of Dan who grieve his death. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, so um, perhaps to connect to tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to hear about waiting patiently, all right, um, that the Lord has told us what is to come and he done, has done so, so that um, we do not grieve or despair, but that we, uh, or grieve and despair the things that he would have us grieve and despair, uh, but not our own life and not certainly not faith in him, um, but rather trust and find our confidence and hope for today and tomorrow. Um, in his word and his gifts given to us in divine service. So uh, I hope you can join us for that. Um, adult catechesis is at 8.15. And so uh, we'll be finishing out the, um, hopefully the divine service and then start to work on the commandments, uh, first, second, and third commandments, God willing. We'll get to that. And then um, also uh, after service, we'll resume our Bible study on Ezekiel. We'll be in Ezekiel chapter 19. We're almost to the break of the kind of the summary of the first half, which will be in chapter 20. I don't know if we'll be able to dig into 20. We might just get stuck on 19. Tomorrow we also have a presentation from uh, Jim Beekler on the work of Compassion International, uh, which is a ministry he supports and advocates for. So we'll hear a presentation from him and an opportunity to support their work as well. All right. So with all that, I bid you fond farewell. Hope to see you in the morning. God be with you. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.